Welcome to this month's episode of the BookNet Canada podcast. I'm your host, Adin Zara, a marketing associate at BookNet. Earlier this month, on January 4th, we celebrated World Braille Day, and it got us wondering, what's the status of Braille accessibility in Canada? To answer this question, I had the honor of interviewing Carrie Kajewski and Marcy Yale, two of the five authors of the study, Improving Braille Availability in Canadian Public Libraries, both of whom are also Braille readers. Improving Braille Availability in Canadian Public Libraries was first published in 2018 by the National Network for Equitable Library Service, NELS. It's a benchmark study into the state of Braille accessibility in Canadian libraries and its impact on the entire book supply chain, from publishers to readers. What would improve the availability of Braille in Canadian public libraries? They outline five key recommendations. Number one, encourage publishers to publish accessibly and encourage libraries to favor accessible books and platforms in their procurement practices. Two, request federal funding for refreshable Braille displays. Three, develop a distributed shared hard copy Braille collection for Canadian public libraries. Four, produce hard copy embossed Braille upon reader request. And five, support Braille and alternative format expertise in public libraries. In our conversation, Marcy and Carrie tell us more about the study and what we can do to improve Braille accessibility in Canada. So tell us a bit about the study, who each of you are, and how you got involved. I'm Marcy Yale, and I'm currently the national president of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. Uh, I'm an advocate. I, <laughs> I've been an advocate all my life. I think it comes with the territory. If you're blind, you have to be an advocate. Either that or you lose out on a lot of things uh, that are your rights. Uh, how I got involved with the Braille study was that uh, Nels got a little bit of money back in 2018 to do a study on Braille and I knew a few of the people involved in um, putting the study together and so they asked me if I wanted to do part of it and I said sure and I said I'd always wanted to I was always curious about the crane library so I said I would do that part so the crane is my little part of it uh, and that's in uh, under issue four, if my memory serves. Um, it talks a little bit about the Crane Library. So I got to do a little research on that. And uh, it was very interesting. And I'm, I'm really glad I got involved in the study. But that that's basically um, AEBC and NELS had a, a relationship. And we... Uh, like I said, I knew a few people and they invited me to join and I said, sure. <laughs> and what about you, Carrie? Yeah, so um, I was in my like early 30s when this project came about and I had just sort of gotten into advocacy. Like I hadn't really been doing a lot of advocating intentionally anyways. Um, for many, many years, I was just had a lot of other things going on when I was younger. And 
So finally in my 30s, I came across the organization, the Canadian Federation of the Blind. And uh, I'd only really known of like CNIB or something. So not even AEBC had I heard of, which is what Mag uh, Marcy was is a part of. But uh, I just got, I got introduced to the CFB through a friend who came back to Canada to do more advocacy again. And and uh, I didn't even heard of Nels until like just a few months before being asked to be on the project um, that I wasn't even aware it was out there, which is what's, what was so sad to me from the beginning that if I knew I wasn't even aware of it, that there are a lot more people like me who weren't. And uh, so I was still learning about what CFB was and what AEBC is and what, and th th there's such thing called Nels um, and how they work. And the fact that being here in my province of Ontario, the reason part of why I didn't hear about a, a lot of it was because um, Ontario was not one of the provinces that was sort of on board from the beginning of Nels. So we were just hearing different things in this part of the country, I guess. But um, getting involved in the CFB, the president of the CFB, Mary Ellen Gabius, just told me about this project that I guess Nels had reached out to them along with other orgs and uh, asked if they had anybody that they might know of who would be good to be on the project. And so she was going to get involved and uh, she'd recommended me just getting to know me as a writer. Uh, and so, yeah, I hadn't met anybody on this project until, you know, the end of 2017 when we started discussing the project. And then by that following spring, it was out. So it was, it wasn't expected for me at all. And it was, it was a great experience to be a part of. And for a reader of the study, it's a great study to read. I find that it's just so comprehensive about what's really going on and what could be going on in Canadian libraries for Braille readers. So for those of us, I, I don't read Braille. So for those of us who don't, who might be listening to this podcast, uh, what are the main book formats for Braille readers and what makes them different from each other? Carrie, if you want to start us off on this one. Um, I think I, I've just been learning a lot about accessible formats in the years since getting involved with everything. So I was still learning. I sort of came about it um, not being the strongest with technology. So well, always growing up, libraries were important to me back when I, I was a child and I could see large print. I sort of lost touch with them over the years. And um, I guess, again, just was had some involvement with CNIB library for years where they would just send me Braille books in the mail. So the te technology, um, more modern technology era really kind of sprang up on me. And luckily, I've been able to pick up pieces and bits of it over the years. But really, I was reading a lot of hard copy braille books where wherever I could get them from, which wasn't much. And then sort of as technology sort of changed in the last decade or so, um, I just sort of followed along and I sort of came up, looked at myself at this project as I was the one who wrote the introduction. So I sort of got to know everybody on the team and got to see what they were all going to contribute to the paper. And then I sort of got to gather it all together and sum it up in a way. Uh, but I learned so much from everybody and just everybody at Nels and Mar Marcy and everyone else about how to get technology to work to make books accessible 
um, and because it's really, you know, the tool we have these days. We've come a long way since the beginning of Braille, which is what I sort of talk about in my introduction and and how technology is has played such a huge role. But a lot of us struggle to just keep going because it's changing all the time. So um, I've just. I think maybe Marcy's might better at this than me. I'm not sure, Marcy, how you read often most most times when you read Braille, but um, like I have a Braille display and I, I use it and everything and I um, read Bluetooth, but I'm not really the technology person to talk about it, I don't think. Well, I mean, I've read Braille ever since I was six. <laughs> uh, it's been a while. Uh, and it used to be the only formats you got were hardcover braille books that came from the states or braille books that were printed on plastic paper thermoform that came from the cnib in toronto or out in british columbia or you'd get the odd paper backed book that came from the uk uh, but now you've got You've got paper Braille, then you've got, which they we call, well, in the, the study, it's hard copy Braille. So that's your regular Braille book in whatever, whatever format you want to call it, whatever it looks like. Uh, but then you've got the electronic stuff. So you've got the downloadable files that you can then read on, on your refreshable Braille displays if you're lucky enough to have one of those. And um, I don't know if you want to have a look at one so that you can describe it for your listeners. Aline, have you ever seen a refreshable Braille display? I have not. Okay, well, we can, we can make that happen. So this is a refreshable Braille display. It's about the size of a computer keyboard, but without the letter button keys. Instead, it has eight large buttons across the top and below it, a long row of braille cells. Each braille cell has six small pins clustered in a two across by three tall rectangle. These pins electronically move up and down to reflect the letters and words on a screen. So someone reading a braille display would move their fingers across the cells as if they were reading braille on paper. It's a 40 cell, they come in uh, 14, 20, 40, 80. Um, there are some older 32 cell braille displays out there still probably that might still be working. Um, but they are still fairly expensive though the, uh, the Orbit reader um, is less than a thousand I think for the 20 cell version. Uh, this one is still over 3000 Wow. Yeah. Yeah. They're expensive little devices, but I can take, if I take this and my phone, my iPhone with me, I can read a book anywhere. And I can, because I can read anything that's on my phone. So I could read a Kindle book or a, yeah. a, an Apple books book or even just a document that's on my phone somewhere else, like the Braille study. <laughs> exactly. And does this connect through Bluetooth? It does. Phone? Yeah, yeah, it does through Bluetooth or to and USB to charge or to connect through a, to a computer. 
very very convenient um, but this is I've only had one for five years now so not even five well no actually it is five now happy birthday <laughs> uh, but that if we could get more of those out to people um, and the devices that they need to connect to them I think we could we could get back some of the literacy we've lost. Yeah. Can you walk us through the process of making a Braille book or making an electronic book accessible through Braille? So now what what you first need is an electronic file. So it used to be um, that you would need to have someone literally Braille with a, a, a Perkins Brailler, um, the Braille into, uh, onto paper, and then that would be put into a book. Then, uh, then they had uh, a, like a press, like a printing press, except it, it's Braille plates uh, that would Braille. So again, you had to type in everything into the press and it would braille a page at a time it would print the it would create the plate and then the plate would create the dots now you just need a, a braille a reasonably good formatted file electronic and you can send it through on a for a uh, you know if you want just a, a really down and dirty version you can send it through as a Word document to a program like Duxbury, which is a Braille translation software, and it sends that to an embosser and you can have Braille in like minutes. The books, they use, they start hopefully with accessible EPUB 3 files, which are then sent to create then they they pull a word document out of that and then that goes to the translation software and through to a production style embosser that can do like 250 pages an hour but you know the the best the the nice thing about it is that if a book starts out accessible if an ebook starts out as an accessible epub 3 then it doesn't take much to turn it into a braille book there are formatting things that have to be dealt with in the in between but if the publisher did that on the way through if they put the braille formatting codes in uh, you know, as they were creating the book, then it takes no time at all to produce Braille now. So there's no excuse um, to, you know, why we can't have hard copy Braille uh, or electronic Braille files if we need them. Um, yeah, it's, it's, the technology has really come a long way. Carrie, maybe a question for you. What are some ways non-Braille users can ensure Braille books keep being produced and read? I think, um, I mean, Braille's been around long enough now that people have heard of it. 
And so it remains such a mystery to people who don't ever need to learn it and don't come close enough up against it. You just see it on elevator buttons or something. I think we just all need to talk about it more. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, well, I, I say I'm not strong with technology and I can barely keep up. Technology has been awesome and I've learned Braille since I was six also. And so it's such a part of my life. So I understand it isn't for a lot of people who don't need it or whatever. But if we all talk about it more and we see the value in it, instead of everybody thinking it's too hard and nobody's going to give it a chance and think we don't need it anymore, then we don't see the value in society and what it is. And then people, the librarians aren't going to ask us about it. They're not going to think that they can at all understand. And not everybody has to understand everything, but everybody could learn a little bit more about these things to make it seem as valuable as it really is to us for everybody, even if they don't need to use it directly, just to see that, that it has value in a, in a place of literacy, like a library in Canada. So I just think we need to keep talking about it and sharing why it matters. Absolutely. Marcy, do you have anything to add to that? Not really. Um, yeah, I think, I think people who have never seen Braille before, um, should wander into their local library and ask them if they have any and have a look at it and just you know understand that it's it's our form of literacy um, if if it weren't for braille i wouldn't know how to spell things audio is not a it's not a substitute it's a great tool to have uh, but learning you know, you, you still need a, a way of, of being able to read a letter at a time and to have to read a letter at a time. When you're reading, when you're listening to an audiobook or, or a document being read by a screen reader, you can read a letter at a time, but you don't have to. And Braille, like handwriting, it forces you to read a letter at a time and to learn how things are spelled. And so I think people have to understand that it is, it's just as important for, for a blind person to have Braille than it is for a sighted person to have print. Neither of us could do without that. You know, can, you, can you imagine if someone just handed you a, a, you know, a, an audio book and said, well, listen to this, and learn to read from audio. You can't. You have to be able. You have to be able to see the letters in order mm -hmm. to learn how to read and to learn how to spell. And so do we. <laughs> exactly. So, what does equitable access to books look like for you? Ooh. <laughs> well, I think I have it now, but I'm. I, because I can now access Kindle and Apple Books and when books are released I get them the same day everybody else does but if you don't have that technology then you still need you need to be able to have a, a library that's going to have access to that technology that can get you books you know as soon as they come out or, or soon after um, yeah, equitable access to me would mean the same, same day that, that you get a book, I want that book. 
and and I'm still I, I it, it still is amazing to me that I can just go on Kindle and or pre-order a book and I get it the same day everybody else does and I've got a choice whether I want my phone to read it whether I want to read it in Braille I I have that choice but like I said not everybody does um, so equitable access to books still needs to include Braille hard copy being available. And um, I really like the, the, the issue and the recommendation in the Braille study for one-offs. So if someone needs a book, it gets Brailled for them, and that's it. They can either keep it, they can recycle it they can share it they can do whatever they want with it they don't necessarily have to give it back and so there doesn't need to be someone you know waiting for that book to come back necessarily and on the other hand the, the person who wanted the book doesn't have to wait until they go looking and oh sorry we don't have that so we're not going to do it now so I really, really like the on-demand production op option and uh, that that model, I think. And, and what's really nice is that that's what's happening now. That both of the both of the the major players in the game, Sila uh, and Nels, are doing the one-offs, and I think that's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carrie, what does equitable access to books look like for you? Yeah, I mean, like, equitable can be many things, whether it is access because of um, needing, you know, to get the training on technology, so much of that is is how we how we go about it nowadays, or um, so of a financially, to have options, right? Because not of us, all of us will then have to go out and get our own Braille display, even though many of us want one. Uh, but the libraries take a part in that. Just like how anybody who might, you know, be struggling financially isn't going to be able to buy a lot of their books. But that's what a library is for, right? It fills that gap. And I just think being having pub libraries involved in this, having publishers involved in this, having government involved in what needs to be um, included, like so that things are um, accessible from more of the beginning. It brings in the publishers in on the discussion. It brings the librarians in on knowing that they have to serve their clients sighted and blind alike. And so just having everybody kind of at the table, including including listening to what blind people are saying um, is looks like a good common, you know, good sort of recipe for better, more um, equitable books, I think. No, absolutely. Equitable access definitely involves, I think, everyone in the book supply chain. But thinking about the study specifically, what are some of those things that the library can do to help achieve it? I honestly, I wanted to come here to be honest about all libraries for the wider good, but I'm, I'm admittedly quite tainted by what happened with my own library, which has really soured me on things and really just made it like confusing for me personally to proceed. What I see mm -hmm. overall is that, yes, having Sela and Nels, having publishers aware and having libraries aware that they have to take an active role 
in the 21st century now where we are is better than what we had before. And I just think, again, I haven't felt listened to, and it's probably just the part of the country I'm in and, and the librarians I happen to be <laughs> listening to me, uh, but to make it Nell's a, a player, which they're becoming more and more of one, it's like they had to be given a chance. And anytime I spoke up about it, I didn't get enough chance to learn about it because it took me forever to get my li library to listen. So I've never felt very comfortable with my own library. And so then I sort of just um, shy away a little bit from it all. So I, I wanted to come back here and join the conversation again, just because I don't want to become bitter about it all. I just want everybody to listen to each other and work together going forward. Marcy, do you have anything to add of what a library could do to help achieve equitable access? Uh, a library has to listen to its customers and has to figure out how best to serve them. And if some of them need Braille, then it needs to go on a hunt for either the book that the customer wants through, you know, the other libraries, or it needs to look local and see who's, you know, who are the Braille production uh, pieces in that area, the, the Braille producers, and get a book done. Um, the libraries can also push back at the publishers, send us accessible files that we can use. Oh, I think that every, I think the libraries have a really big uh, part to play um, in this whole equitable access framework. And mm -hmm. I'm not a library user. Uh, what's discouraged you from using the library to access books, Marcy? It's not that the, that I that I've been discouraged. I've just I think I've been spoiled. I think what what happened to me was all of a sudden I had access to um, first it was Apple Books um, on my Mac, my first Mac, and all of a sudden I had access to a bookstore, <laughs> a huge bookstore um, that had a heck of a lot more than whatever my library would have. And I just never, I was never a library junkie except for Braille books. I used to get them through CNIB back when I was younger. Uh, then I went to then then I found audible.com so again I like I tend to like to buy my books I tend to like to own them rather than borrow them and not get to keep them so I guess that's my um, stupidity <laughs> I guess <laughs> uh, it's not the financially best way of going uh, about things but uh, it certainly is how, you know, as soon as I found audible.com, I stopped, I stopped paying attention to what the CNIB library was doing because audible.com was a better source of books than the library was. Again, it had more books, not necessarily as good as going to a bookstore, but it had you know, much more than the library did so yeah that's that's so it, for me it wasn't a discouraging it was just 
I tend to like to buy my books. Mm-hmm. I, I just think it starts from the very, it just starts from the basics. The library is just that their places, uh, librarians are supposed to be curious people. Um, they, this, they need to start by from the children's section with print braille books. Uh, they need to put some effort into showing that we are just as much a part of a public library as anyone else. And so how do you serve us best? Um, starts by listening and starts by making not, you know, as, as librarians supporting what Braille is in um, literacy in a society, like a healthy society. Mm -hmm. So thinking about that advocacy, what are um, some of the biggest reasons why creating these born accessible books? And why is that important? Oh, because it takes away the need to fight. <laughs> it removes that need to always be fighting. If you have a born accessible book, if it's born accessible as an ebook, it can be turned into other alternate formats really easily, uh, which means that the stress and all, you know, all of the angst that people usually, you know, when as soon as they hear alternate formats, they're like, oh my goodness, what's long, you know, how long is this going to take? How much is this going to cost? But Intimidating, if, yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and so, but if a book starts out accessible, if it starts out as a, a great EPUB 3, then it can be turned into a Braille-ready file. It can be turned into... It, uh, someone who needs large print has that uh, has the ability to do that on their own tablet on their own device uh, either that or else someone can print a large print copy for that person so easily there, there's just so many different avenues that are opened up if the book starts out accessible if, if there's not the need to jump through hoops to get to that point. Carrie, did you have anything to add? I know some of the biggest reasons why creating born accessible books are important. Yeah, I, I think it's just that we all have the right to access information and one part of our society is always gonna be held back if there's a large amount that they're missing out on compared to everyone else. And if there's things we can do like I said, together, librarians, not it's not all in the libraries, but a uh, big chunk of it is librarians and publishers and, and all of us. And uh, then I think that we'll just have a stronger society overall. So I just I just think this is one of the most worthwhile papers that I've. Uh, so I'm glad to be part of it. And I hope I've always hoped that it just makes the rounds and librarians read it, because whether they're going to hear from a blind, every blind person in Canada this would at least get them thinking about the right things. Exactly. And just a final question. Um, what's one change to the production or distribution of Braille books in Canada that would make the biggest difference for you? Oh, I just think that the government needs to, <laughs> needs to shell out some money for some Braille displays put a braille display and whatever whatever computer assistive 
whatever computer or tablet or phone that someone needs to connect to that braille display so that everybody who wants it can have access to electronic braille that would do that would do a lot that was that was one of our recommendations and it wouldn't take much and what about for you Carrie uh, again for me I think it's just again for everybody everybody involved to work together better communicate more so that you know we figure out what needs done and how the best way to do it um, because right now it's still there's not enough people that know about it or know how to use it because it's not well enough supported across the board across the country um, from province and territory to territory so I think it'll be hard to get anything on board as far as this sort of piece of it as long as certain certain provinces and the governments are, are not going to take it seriously. Um, but like just showing we all have a role in making, helping each other access fair and equitable literacy, I guess. I just think that publishers need to buy in and the sooner they buy in the better and whatever they need, they need to communicate that to the powers that be so that we can get all publishers in Canada to understand how and to be able to create born accessible ebooks. And I gotta say that most of them are pretty accessible. The, the ones that hit Kindle or that hit Apple Books, every once in a while there's one that just doesn't play nice. Uh, <laughs> But when it doesn't play nice, it really doesn't. Right? There are there are books where you open the book and it just it <laughs> it doesn't read at all. Uh, I, I think it's at the point where it's either reasonably accessible or it's completely inaccessible. And <laughs> yeah. I'd like I'd like to see those gone, the completely inaccessible, and I'd like to see. Like I said, I'd like to see the publishers figure out what it is that they need to to make that possible and, um, and communicate it so that we can all help advocate for it. Because in the end, that would solve so many problems. Thank you, Carrie and Marcy, for joining us to talk about improving Braille availability in Canadian public libraries. We hope that this work continues to inspire change across the book industry. Before we go, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that BookNet Canada's staff, board, partners, and our makeshift podcast studio operate upon the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, the Anishinaabeg, the Haudenosaunee, and Wendat Indigenous peoples the original nations of this land. We endorse the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada and support an ongoing shift from gatekeeping to space making in the book industry. And we hope that our work, including this podcast, helps to create an environment that supports that shift. We'd also like to acknowledge the Government of Canada for their financial support through the Canada Book Fund. Thanks again to Carrie Kajewski and Marcia for speaking with us this month. And of course, Thanks to you for listening.